All right, we are going to go ahead and start here. Um, and maybe some more people will show up. Maybe teaching Bible class on a home group Sunday is the, the wrong idea here, but that's okay because there's, it just means there will be less criticism about what I'm about to do here this morning. So I feel better, actually. But let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can spend time talking about how to disagree about doctrinal positions and perhaps even sharpen our thinking on how to form some of those positions as a local church. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Um, when doctrine divides, case study. This is where we're at. I wanted to start you with a little quote by C.S. Lewis that I think is instructive for us. We turn to the helps only when the hard passages are manifestly hard, but there are treacherous passages which will not send us to the notes. They look easy and aren't. And his point here is that sometimes a text of scripture looks like it's really, really clear, when in fact, it's actually a really challenging and difficult text. So what appears clear to us may be really complex, but then on the other hand, some texts that look really complex and hard to us, to the original readers, may have seemed really, really understandable. They would have made a ton of sense. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, all of these things about heads being covered and, or not, and we can't figure out, are those actually bales or just really long women's hair? Well, it was evident to whoever was reading this text right away. Or when Paul says, about the other matters, I will talk to you when I come. What are those other matters? Well, they probably knew. So we just need to know sometimes texts that are really hard for us to understand would have been really clear for them. And sometimes we think things are clear that really aren't at all. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, you've probably had that experience in any other part of life, whether it's a recipe or an Ikea bookshelf manual or something. You know, it looks real, well, Ikea never looks clear, but it's actually not that complicated. Recipes, yeah, I don't, you get what I'm saying. So in the first lesson, I tried to argue that we need to have interpretive humility when reading and responding to the Bible. And then I introduced theological triage with this idea of a gravitational center. And now I want to give us a case study with putting this in action regarding the length of the days of creation. Okay, so I've written a case study here. I want to imagine that you're in this thing because it might give you guidance if you ever encounter this precise situation, but then also it might just be a nice thought experiment for you. So suppose you find yourself needing to use theological triage. It's probably because you've run into doctrinal disagreement with someone else, or you've realized that you're doctrinal position on something is starting to change. So you need to do some theological triage to see how big of a deal this is. I just want to give a brief side note. If you've never changed your view on how to interpret a passage or on a doctrinal position, I would suggest that you are guilty of living according to confirmation bias. You're, you're interpreting every text to have it say what you already thought that it said. And um, that's not always bad. I mean, you have to operate in the world somehow. But we also have to be aware that we're not just making the Bible say what we want it to say every time we approach it. Uh, this involves having to think hard whenever the Bible is presented to us. And it's a little unsettling because none of us like to have our beliefs 
about something shaken. Uh, that's that's tough. And I, I'll go back to my example of the book of Esther. When I picked that book to preach, I thought I wanted to preach it because I wanted to make a point that I thought would be helpful for our church. It would be shaping our church life. And the book meant, as I came to understand it, something totally different than what I originally thought it would have. And that was really hard. And it, it took a lot more work for me now to study the whole book more thoroughly instead of just making it say what I wanted it to say. And I think we all have to get there eventually. Uh, not necessarily in agreement with me on that text, but get to the point where we're willing to reinterpret text as we come to learn more information. But imagine that you're standing out in the lobby at church, and um, you're talking to these other church members who are discussing the curriculum used by the various schools that their children attend. And the conversation turns to the way that the schools talk about creation and human origins. One couple sends their children to public school, and they comment that their children are learning an atheistic evolutionary account of human origins, but that they're discussing this matter with their children. In fact, they're reading through Augustine's commentary on Genesis, and they've come to agree with Augustine that God created all things instantaneously and simultaneously. So this couple just wants their kids to know that God is the author of creation. They're not really concerned with the details of how there went from being nothing to there being what is now. And they've just taken to heart Augustine's admonition that if you aren't yet able to grasp this, leave the contemplation of it to those who have the capacity. And they say, our kids are nuts. We're just trying to be a family who loves God, and we don't have time to study this out. Augustine made it really easy. God created everything all at once. So that's one couple. Another couple mentions that the Christian school their children attend doesn't really get into the details, but they know that some parents and teachers believe in a gap theory, while others believe that each of the seven days of Genesis 1 is a literal 24-hour day occurred in an immediate succession. One couple chimes in that they think the gap theory makes sense of carbon dating of the earth. And another couple suggests that any view other than a literal 24-hour day view denies the truth and authority of the Bible. So there are some disagreements that are starting to happen in this conversation. As it unravels, you hesitate to say anything because you've actually never really considered what other Christians might believe. You mostly assume that faithful Christians agree that Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis are right. God created all things in six normal length days of approximately 24 hours. You wonder whether the other church couples are faithful to scripture, but you also realize that you need to do some more study to perform theological triage here. You heard them quote Augustine, who you think is a really good Christian, but it sounds like he might disagree with Ken, who you also think is a really good Christian. So you know you've got to do some more work. So some items to know. First, you can already see how a whole doctrine can't be neatly categorized. In this thought experiment, the, the doctrine of creation has many subcategories, and you're realizing you need to start with just one of those subcategories. How to understand the term day in Genesis 1. Should this be understood as referring to a literal 24-hour day in six of them that happen in a row, or does it refer to something else? Second, you can see how faithful Christians might disagree on the issue, even without performing theological triage. You, you intuitively recognize this might not be an essential category. Like this thing about the length of days might be in the non-essentials. That doesn't mean it's not important, but you're not quite ready to say that Augustine isn't a Christian. 
And if you end up agreeing with Augustine, you don't want to say that Ken Ham isn't a Christian either. So you realize there might be room for flexibility, but you want to figure out how much. Third, you can see that the how the Christians in this example have at least three agenda items if they're going to move forward here. First, they need to investigate the scriptures and Christian teaching to see if they've unconsciously adopted a view without considering any other perspectives. So one couple, the Augustine couple, might never have heard of Ken Ham. They read Augustine, that's the first thing they heard about creation, and they've adopted that view. And you've only gone to a creation seminar run by Ken Ham, so you adopted that view. You can see how people can unconsciously adopt one view without considering other views. And you want to consider other views before you make your final conclusion. Third, the Christian couple here wants to know what deeper doctrinal commitments could be shared by these Christians in the lobby who disagree about the meaning of day. What, what's the gravitational center that everyone in that circle believes that can keep them together, fellowshipping and loving God, worshiping together every Sunday? You start to realize that even subcategories of doctrine can be quite controversial. So you realize none of us are atheistic creationists, evolutionists. None of us are polytheistic creationists. None of us are saying multiple gods are creating. We're saying one God is doing it, and we're all agreeing that it's the triune God. So out of all of the humans who have ever lived on the planet, we're in really close agreement. But when we get to the subcategories, there's a lot of disagreement. So what should this couple do? Well, the first step to performing theological triage is to consider what other Christians have said about the issue in the past. Um, so returning to our case study, you continue talking with one of the couples on your way out to the car, and this couple, unlike the others, didn't know what to think at all. But unlike you, they aren't really interested in the discussion at all. They just don't really care. But you mutually agree as you walk to the car to study the issue together. You decide it would be best for each of you to take a different approach to determine whether or not faithful Christians can disagree on this issue. You're more interested, so you're going to go home and pull out Greg Allison's historical theology and read his whole section on the doctrine of creation. You might even decide to purchase three views on Genesis, history, fiction, or neither, so that you can familiarize yourself with the debate among evangelical Christians. You know Zondervan's an evangelical publisher, so they're not going to put anything in their book that doesn't meet the mark of at least broader evangelicalism. The other couple isn't so interested, so all they're going to do is a quick Google search is they look up statements of faith of our church and other churches online, and then you're going to meet together and report your findings. So your friends who looked up the statements of faith decided to look at the Baptist faith and message because they're part of a church in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention that has at least temporarily adopted that as their statement of faith. Talking about us here. And then they also think, I'm going to look at Eden Baptist Church's statement of faith because a lot of people from our church used to go there, and they're right across town, and we generally think that they're pretty faithful to the Bible. And you know what? We've read a lot of Nine Marks books out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, so we'll look at their statement of faith. And there are some members of our church who work for the Evangelical Free Church of America, so why don't we look at theirs too? And that's about as much research as we want to do. Here are their findings. The BFNM doesn't have an article on creation, but they mention that God is the creator and that man is a special creation of God made in his own image. When they looked at Eden's website, their statement of faith also doesn't have an article on creation, 
But they note that the sun was the agent of creation and sustains it, and that the triune God is the creator of all things and will restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. When they pulled up Capitol Hill's statement of faith, they did command F to look for the word creation, and they couldn't find it anywhere. And then they looked up the EFCA statement of faith and found that they actually have published a book with a fuller explanation of the doctrine. So they contacted a fellow church member and had them snag a copy while they were at work. And they learned that the EFCA explains that all evangelical Christians are united in the conviction that God is the creator of all things, but that they are divided over how God created, the process involved in the nature of the days in Genesis 1. They note that because of the uncertainty regarding the meaning and literary form of this text and the lack of evangelical consensus on this issue, our statement of faith does not require a particular position on the mechanics of creation. Well, you fill them in on your historical survey where you discovered that Christians have disagreed for a long time about the meaning of the term day in creation. But most Christian theologians, especially from the Reformation period onward, maintained a 24-hour literal six-day creationism. But to your surprise, they aren't defending against those who suggest that creation took a long time, evolutionary creationists, but against those who suggest that creation happened in one instant. They're defending against Augustine and Philo and, and Origen and some of these other people. You also discover that many ancient and modern theologians explain the text differ differently. So some suggest that Moses wrote two different creation accounts, one in Genesis 1 through 24a, and one in Genesis 2, 4 through 24. So Adam was created, well, all of humanity was created in chapter 1, and then when you get to chapter 2, he hasn't been created yet. So maybe Moses is giving two creation accounts. You also discover that the debate in church history has less to do with science than it does with philosophy, and it's actually really hard to understand. They're dealing with things like creation emanating from God versus appearing out of nothing. There are some philosophical terms that you've never heard before. So you realize that you're going to have to go deeper if you're going to wrap your mind around this debate. So you place another Amazon order. This time you purchase Reading Genesis Well. So you continue to read that. You understand that the evidence is mixed, but you realize that Christians have disagreed and that you've got your work cut out for you. Your friends conclude that they don't have time or interest to pursue the matter further. Based on the statements of faith and the diversity among trusted Christians that they know, they conclude that the issue is a third or fourth level matter and they just don't have the time or capacity to pursue it further. However, if you are going to go talk to one of your pastors about it in the lobby after church, they'll saddle up to that conversation and hear what they have to say. So the following Sunday, um, you and your friends notice that one of the pastors is standing out by the door in the lobby all by himself, just waiting for someone to come up and talk to him. And you decide to approach him and see what he believes about the term day in Genesis 1. And to your surprise, he has perfectly memorized the quote by the theologian John Frame. And he says, I have no new insight on these issues, nor even any view on the matter that I could argue with confidence. I would direct my parishioners to the many other scholars who are producing articles and books on these subjects. Frankly, I tend to be persuaded by the last person I have listened to. There are reasons for taking the days as normal days. On the other hand, I'm not persuaded that the figurative view should be considered heretical. 
Well, you're not satisfied with that. You want to know what he actually thinks, but you ask, well, what do the other pastors here think? And he replies, I'm not sure. We've never really discussed the issue in depth, but I know that all the pastors here affirm that the triune God created all things. Beyond that, I'm not certain how they would articulate it. You then ask your pastor, do you have any advice for me as I try to figure out what I believe? And he makes a few suggestions. First, he says, work hard to gain a clear understanding of each view. So you should be able to articulate a summary of every view or each of the main views in a way that their proponents would say, yes, you're accurately representing this view. So don't misrepresent them. And you know what? You're even welcome to use any of the books that I have upstairs. Just let me know before you take them so I can take a picture of you with it so I know where they are. <laughs> and realize that this is going to take a good amount of time and effort, so it's okay to hold a provisional position. You don't have to say, I don't believe anything about this until I've studied it all out. You can provisionally hold the view that you learned from the start, whether that's Augustine's view or Ken Ham's view. And you can also understand that there are other faithful Christians that might disagree with you. And you should be open to changing your view in the course of your study. Um, focus on the authorial communicative intent as you study Genesis, even if that means you don't find a completely satisfying answer. It may be that Moses is just using ancient literary, literary conventions to make critical theological points to subvert ancient Egyptian cre creation mythologies. So he's not thinking about Charles Darwin. So the questions that you have might not be answered in your investigation of Genesis. So it may be that Moses records the creation of the sun on day four, after the plants are already growing, to disenfranchise the Egyptian god, Ra. And I even put a nice footnote for you on what they would have believed about Ra. And if you would like to read ancient Egyptian mythology, I have a book for that. And you can read all about what they would have said about how the sun created all things, how the sun gave life to everything. You realize that Moses and all the ancient Israelites may have believed that. They certainly were prone to idolatry and worshiping false gods, so maybe that's what he's getting at. If Moses was alive in the post-Darwin age, he might have written the account differently. He originally wrote to subvert a polytheistic accounting for human origins, where we're trying to subvert an atheistic accounting for human origins. So things might be stated differently. Finally, your pastor suggests, include more than Genesis 1 in your investigation. Consider the whole Bible as you try to express your doctrine of creation. And then, as he's teaching the class, he might give a final note. If you have questions, you can talk to me, and you can trust that I won't ever try to hide a strong position for a view that I disagree with. So if you think, I'm, I really am coming to believe a view that my pastor doesn't agree with, you can talk with us about it, and we're never going to hide from you the strongest arguments for your view. If we know the strongest arguments for the view you want to adopt, we'll let you know what they are, and we're not going to hide the weaknesses of our views if we disagree with you. So we're not going to hide the weaknesses of, of my position, whatever that might be when you talk to us. I want to help you believe what you think you need to based on your study, and I want to aid you, even if that's going to solidify you in a view that's different than mine. So you, going back to the end times, I, I am barely a non-millennialist, and if you, if you ask me what I think about that, I, I'll give you the, and you're like, I'm a die-in-the-wool premillennialist, 
and you're explaining to me why, and you're giving me really bad reasons to be a premillennialist, I want to help you by giving you better reasons to be a premillennialist, and I want you to know the strongest and the weakest aspects of my view. Okay, that, that's how we want to operate here. Um, so know that you're not going to be antagonized, um, but you also might have it pointed out to you that your reasons for holding your current view are really weak. Um, so if you're a cessationist, and the reason you're a cessationist is because of the verse that says, um, you know, um, all these things will end when the perfect comes, and you say the perfect is the, the word of God, we'll help you understand, no, actually the perfect is Christ. And there are still good reasons you might be a cessationist, but that's not one of them, okay? So we'll help you strengthen your view. All right, items to know here. Doctrinal discovery should occur within a community of others, especially fellow church members and church leaders, and then authors and other Christians. So we've appealed to other church statements of faith. We've looked at books. You've talked to people in your church, and you've talked to your pastors. Second, hermeneutics or interpretation plays an essential role in theological triage and doctrinal discovery. When we're reading the Bible, our main goal is to understand the authorial communicative intent within the framework of the whole canon of the scripture. So when it comes to Genesis 1, we want to know what was Moses trying to say there? And then second, we want to say, how does that contribute to the larger message of the Bible? We want to understand how Jesus and the apostles talked about things. So already we might be able to say, it's okay to believe in a literal 24-hour, six-day creationism, but also as you interact with other members in your church, maybe you right now want to commit to not calling them heretical if they're using the language of Jesus and the apostles. And as you read the New Testament, you might find that they never reference six days of creation. So you shouldn't be too persnickety towards that church member who doesn't either. Now that church member needs to avoid being too um, persnickety towards the literal six-day creationist person because Jesus read the whole Old Testament and he cared about the whole Old Testament, so we should too. We have to work to figure out how to put them together. All right. Any questions on that step as we're identifying the issues? Okay. As you can see, this stuff takes a long time, and I would say anytime you run into a disagreement, Think about this case study so it's not just on the days of creation. It could be on any disagreement. Start thinking about, okay, this is maybe the right way to approach it, to start looking not to jump to a conclusion, but to start investigating things. So second, we need to now work to performing theological triage, starting by asking some of the right questions. So back to our case study. You've gotten the basic outlines of various views, even if you don't understand all of them, because some of them get quite philosophical. Um, you know you have more to study, but you can go ahead and move forward to perform theological triage. And you remember that Gavin Ortland in Finding the Right Hills to Die On gave you four questions to ask as you're preparing to do triage. The first is, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? So prior to your study, you assumed that the use of the term day in the Bible was very clear. But as you studied the matter, you came across some significant points that actually muddle the issue. So first, you realize that in Genesis 1 and 2, the term day is used in multiple ways. The term day appears as a name for light in Genesis 1-5. So God called the light day. And you remember reading um, this guy who is talking about the historical background that maybe Moses wouldn't want to, 
want to use a term for a day of the week or anything else because that might be correlated with a pagan deity. Um, he didn't want to, on day four, when he talked about the creation of the sun and the moon, use the term sun and moon because those words are the same names for the pagan gods that they represented. So instead, he just used the greater lights and the lesser lights. So you start to realize that there's some literary ambiguity here. And then finally, you realize that in Genesis 2-4, the term day is used figuratively. You know this because you looked at a variety of English translations. And in the King James Version, it says in Genesis 2-4, on the day that God created the earth. Um, and you, even though in our CSB it says, during the time that God created the earth. You realize that that word for day can sometimes be used figuratively. Um, second, as you consider the other biblical uses of the term day, you recognize that the term can be used in the Old Testament to refer to an indefinite general amount of time, um, and that in the New Testament, Peter introduces the notion that God's experience of time differs from our experience, where he can equate a day to a thousand years. Third, you do a quick search on your Bible software, on Bible Gateway or something like that, and you come to find that there are 2,319 occurrences of the Hebrew word for day in the Old Testament alone. But even though there are a good amount of figurative uses, the majority of uses, because you looked at all 2,319 of them, the majority of them are actually what we would consider a normal 24-hour day. So here you understand that the evidence for the meaning of the word day is somewhat mixed, and it's not as clear as you once thought. So then you move to the second question. What is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? You start to think that while the issue of Trinitarian responsibility for creation is massively significant for the doctrine of creation, the, the meaning of the term day is not. The best evidence for this conclusion is that the New Testament authors don't reference the six days of creation when they tell the story of God's creation, redemption, and future restoration of the cosmos. So you notice that in the key New Testament texts talking about creation, they do so in Christological terms or with reference to God the Father. And what's more, in evangelistic sermons where the relationship between the significance of the term day and the gospel would be most evident, Paul simply emphasizes that God is the true creator, and he doesn't go into further details. So you start to realize that the meaning of the term day doesn't influence our understanding or proclamation of the gospel. And, and a final point on that, if anyone's like, ah, but I think I could find a way that it would, I just push you to ask why, when Paul had the opportunity to quote from Genesis 1, which he knew, did he not? Why, why did he not do that? Um, and then you remember that Ortland says, you need to ask, what's the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? And you've already realized that different Christians have hold different views. So um, you decide, I'll look at all of the creeds and the councils, and you skim through uh, Justin Holcomb's book, Know the Creeds and the Councils, and you don't find anything about the term day in any of them. And as you pull out, for all the Reformed individuals here, the theologian Herman Bavinck's Systematic Theology, Volume 1, he remarks, it is remarkable that not a single confession made a fixed pronouncement about the six-day continuum, and that in theology, as well as a variety of interpretations, were allowed to exist side by side. 
So for all of the Calvinists in the room, it ended the discussion for you right there. For those who don't love Herman Bobbink, maybe you're wanting to think, well, what, what have historic Baptists said? So you pull out your collection of Charles Spurgeon, the only apostle to the Baptists. You pull out his, his sermons, and you pull out his one on the Holy Spirit, and he wrote this, or spoke this in a sermon. We know not how remote the period of the creation of this globe may be, certainly millions of years before the time of Adam. Our planet has passed through various stages of existence, and different kinds of creatures have lived on its surface, all of which have been fashioned by God. And that ends the discussion for you, because you love Charles Spurgeon. But for some of you, that still won't be convincing, because not only are you a Calvinistic Baptist, you're also a dispensationalist Calvinistic Baptist, so you decide to pull out the Bible that your grandma gave you when you were 14 and thought about being a youth pastor very briefly, and it was the King James edition of C.I. Schofield, the guy who popularized dispensationalism in uh, England and the United States. You, you pull out his study Bible, and you read his notes on Genesis 1. And he just open-endedly suggests that the word day is used in three ways, some more figurative and some more literal. And he goes on to suggest that the use of evening and morning may be held to limit day to the solar day, but the frequent parabolic use of the natural phenomena may warrant the conclusion that each creative day was a period of time marked off by a beginning and an ending. So day had a start and it had an end, and that's all that we know about it. Well, you're pretty convinced by this point that all of the theologians that you respect, even if they take a position, are open to others who disagree with you, but you want to think about someone who's alive now, not all of these dead theologians. So you decide to look up the Reverend Dr. R. Albert Moeller Jr., who's the president of the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you listen to a talk that he gave at, uh, at uh, TEDS, the Evangelical Theological Seminary in Chicago, where he said that not only does he re re maintain friendships with people who hold contrary positions on this matter, he also hires them as faculty members. And you think this comes from the guy who fired a lot of faculty members over theological liberalism, so we think that we can trust that he's going to care about conservative doctrine. So you say, I think this is going to be a lower tier issue, but let me ask the final question. What is the doctrine's effect upon the church today? That question is difficult to answer. Um, some Christians problematically deny that the Bible has anything true to say about human origins. Other Christians, desiring to be biblically faithful, sense tensions within the text, but recognize that the Bible is not a scientific textbook and that Genesis 1 represents a unique literary genre. Other Christians take the Genesis 1 record at face value, but think that the New Testament descriptions of creation should take precedence. Still, other Christians that you know subject every additional description of creation to Genesis 1, making the first creation account authoritative over all other accounts. Now, I'm going to provide a brief warning here. I think that's a kind of chrono chronological snobbery that says what came first is best, but because we're Christians, and we're not, um, you know, practicing Judaism, we, we read the Bible with Christological supremacy. So we don't prioritize the first way 
of reading the Bible, reading forward, starting with the Old Covenant readings and moving into the New. We actually start with a Christological reading of the Bible, just like Jesus and the apostles did, where they read backwards. Now, we need to read forward and backwards, but we need to give priority to the Christological interpretations of the Old Testament, uh, not a chronological reading. Okay, this is somewhat debated, um, and this would be a good Bible class, maybe, the, the Christotelic versus Christocentric readings of the Bible. Um, but I, I would just suggest that when Christians minimize the Christological account of creation in order to prioritize the Genesis 1 account, and when Christians subject the biblical creation accounts, I'm going to say Genesis 1 and 2 offer different angles, to modern atheistic accounts of creation, the impact on the church is significant. Okay, so it can be more or less significant depending on how far you go on either side. Um, but on the whole... I don't think it's actually that significant. I think another Reformed theologian, Gerhardus Voss, is helpful here. He says, is it right to say that the non-literal interpretation is an innovation to which the development of modern science has driven theologians? No, those who say so are mistaken. Augustine already said, what kind of days they were is extremely difficult or even impossible for us to imagine, much less to say. So, there may be some Christians who are motivated by bad reasons to come to the conclusions that they have. But we also have to concede that there are Christians far before there were any evolutionary accounts of the, the world who also said, it's hard to know what to make of this term day. So those are places where your discussions with someone will take you deeper. You shouldn't just hear them say, um, I don't believe in a literal 26 hour day creationism in say liberal you you need to recognize you have to go deeper and try to understand what's motivating that and sometimes there are bad motivations for it like we don't think the vibe we think the whole bible is a fantasy and it has nothing to say well there are people who identify as christians and believe that but i don't think that would be anyone in our church because they wouldn't want to be here if they believe that because of the way we talk about the bible all right so you've gone through all of those questions, and you're really tipping towards saying, this is not as big of an issue as I once thought it was. Still, it's not unimportant, and I can still arrive at a position, but I can now categorize it appropriately. So given all of the information that you found, you decide this belongs in a third or fourth level issue. It should have no um, impact on the relationships that I have with other people in our church. It should have no impact on the fellowship that we have with one another. And then you start thinking, but what about all the other doctrines of creation? You're not quite ready to go through that whole process for all of these, but you might want to know, how are your pastors categorizing this? You can ask Josh and Steve how they would precisely do it. Um, I, I gave, I'm putting a small chart there. I'm saying that some issues related to the doctrine of creation are first-level issues, and some are like almost they don't even really be belong on the chart, like did Adam have a belly button? Um, so I put that in the relevant and stimulating category, but it has no influence on anything, right? So that's kind of a fourth-level category. I'm saying that there are very few things that I could think of to put in the second level category. That's just because I haven't talked enough with people about all the possible beliefs about the doctrine of creation. Maybe something would be there. Um, but the, I think a lot of the issues 
would fall into a third and fourth level category. Now, the motivations for how someone gets there might bump something up or move it down. So, for example, someone might not know how to articulate a Trinitarian doctrine of creation, and they might even say something that just can't possibly have fit with what Moses was thinking. So some people, um, people that are like great Christians, will say, well, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when, when God said, let us make man in our image, he was referencing the Trinity, and Moses knew that. Moses didn't know that. We're reading back into it, and in one way I'm okay with that, but that's also not right. So someone might defend a triune action of creation that way, and I'm not going to say that they're a problem. They're just not maybe thinking about it as helpfully as they should. Uh, they need to try to understand what was Moses communicating there. I th I'll give my quick opinion. I think Moses is saying, all of these people are believing in a bunch of false gods who created the world, and God stands before them, and he says, let's create man in our image. And then he says, I'm creating them in mine. So he created them in his image, not their image. So I think, I think he's disenfranchising this ancient worldview of the divine council, saying no other god is responsible for these humans. They ought to serve no one else. They bear my image alone. And that's why when Moses gets into the Decalogue and he's recording, you should make no idol, make no image of me because you're my images. You're my image bearers to represent my presence. So I think that's a more theologically stimulating and historically sensitive way of interpreting let us make man in our image. And then he turns the table and he makes them in his image. So you see how even some of those things, they're more or less theologically deep ways of reading it. And I think the more it's paired with the historical background, the more theologically relevant and deep it will become. But you move on and you say, well, okay, I disagree with all of these other couples, except for the, and even the one that holds to strict 24-hour, six-day creationism, and they're telling everyone else they're unbiblical for not holding it. I agree with their position, but I don't believe with the tenacity that they're holding it. I don't think it's as high on the doctrinal scale as they think it is. Um, so what's the gravitational center that can hold all of us together in the lobby? So when we're all standing in that circle disagreeing and we're imagining ourselves as planetary bodies, what's that gravitational center that can hold us in a conversation together? Well, you pull up my Bible class lesson from last week and you remember that you need to start by identifying the Christological expression of a particular doctrine. So Christological supremacy, all doctrines find their proper place in Christ. And you think of Paul's line in Colossians 1.16, which may have been an early confession of faith. For everything was created by him, Christ, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. That's a really start, good starting point for your gravitational center that can allow Christians who disagree about a lot of aspects of creation to, to worship God together. Can we all affirm that Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things? And if everyone in that circle is nodding their head, then, then you can worship God together. You are set apart from any person who's had the Old Testament prior to Christ and from all polytheists and all atheists. But you want to build on it a little more. So you look at the creeds and the catechisms again. You, you start to identify that God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. You're reading some ancient Christian writings that stress the triune 
um, involvement in creation, and because we're Trinitarian Christians, you decide that your, your gravitational center needs to affirm the Trinitarian involvement in creation, because you want to be separate from, like, uh, you know, oneness Pentecostals or from Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't exactly know what they would believe, or Mormons. You know, maybe they would all say different things that aren't Trinitarian. Well, we want a Trinitarian gravitational center, so you build out a little bit to there. Um, so this is, this is your long-form gravitational center statement. The triune God is the creator and sustainer of all things. All things are created for his glory. Humanity is God's special creation. The triune God is committed to his original creation purposes and will bring about the restoration and redemption of the fallen cosmos in Jesus Christ. So you're not only getting to the gravitational heart of creation, but the goal of creation. You're putting this in the story of the gospel because you want your gravitational center to be colored in by the, the story of the gospel, where we move from creation to fall to redemption to, to new creation. Um, but that's a little long to say, so... When someone asks you, when a guest comes into our church and says, hey, what do you guys believe about creation? You're going to say something like, we believe that the triune God is the creator of all things. And, and you're going to represent our whole church with a good gravitational center. If they say, well, suss that out, then you start articulating your long-form gravitational center. And the further you get in conversation, they might say, well, what do you guys believe about the days of creation? And then you'll say something like, um, well, everybody at our church would affirm this, this, this main thing. And then there are people who would like, disagree about certain other aspects. And personally, I believe that, you know, if this is your belief, if you're following Augustine, personally, I believe that you know, Augustine was right. Everything happened in one instant. Um, and your spouse or someone else would be like, and you know what, like my belief is in six literal 24-hour days. And then someone else joins the conversation because they love this topic. They're like, well, I'm really into the gap theory. Well, you guys can have those conversations. Don't hide what you believe. Don't feel like you can't affirm something. But when you're representing our church, make sure you're not just representing you. And when you're out talking to unbelievers and declaring the gospel, don't try to say, if you're actually going to be a Christian, you have to hold to my subcategory of belief here. Um, I think people are sometimes hindered from coming to the Lord because people express lesser doctrines in a way that make them central doctrines, and someone rejects Christ because they've misunderstood, they, they actually aren't. They're rejecting your subcategory position on something that not everyone who's a Christian holds. So I am just trying to urge caution um, and unity as you talk to people in the community and who come to visit our church. Work towards that gravitational center. And here's a little map for you on how these things can orbit together. Some things can't belong in our universe. Polytheistic creation can't belong. Atheistic evolution can't belong. Monotheistic creation that denies a trinity can't belong. Um, you, you see there are lots of articulations that don't belong in our universe, but there are some that can belong here. And um, I'm not, they're in orbit here, and the proximity isn't what's more or less biblical. It's just I had to put them on different orbits because that's how planets work, I think. It's been a long time since ninth grade science. So then you have to choose a course of action. And you realize it's a third or fourth tier issue. So you're going to keep worshiping together, pursuing deep friendships, and even engaging in conversation with these other people as you try to sharpen your view and um, arrive at further 
clarity. And as you do so, you will keep these general guidelines for disagreements in place, that you're going to work from a foundation of love. You're going to share a relationship with Christ and find great unity there. And in this gravitational center, you'll recall the words of our church covenant about working and praying for unity from the spirit and the bond of peace as you disagree about doctrine. And you'll try to engage in the right kind of disagreement with irenic or peaceful conversations, since this is a non-essential category. You're not contending for the faith. That's a polemic you know, warlike contention. Here it's more irenic. And you're going to avoid antagonization. It's okay to try to persuade others of your views, but you need to recognize when it's time for you just to leave something alone, especially when these views can be held together and you're in agreement on the gravitational center. You're going to work to understand the other positions before disagreeing. And you're going to try to identify points of commonality while also clarifying points of difference. All the while, you're going to avoid committing logical fallacies as you construct your view and critique others. You're going to be open to changing your mind as you hear new evidence that you haven't yet considered. Um, you want to be like um, Ezra and Josiah and others when they read something from the Bible that they hadn't seen. They, they rent their clothes and repented of their false position. You don't need to rent your clothes. Please don't do that when you're talking with people in the lobby, at least, if you've found you've adopted a heretical position. Just repent before the Lord and, and change your view. Or consider new data. Consider better arguments that you haven't yet. But then finally, be willing to be uncomfortable in your church and your friendships. If your greatest sense of comfort in your church is the security of tribalism and sectarianism, work to be increasingly uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Remember that unity does not require 100% agreement on everything. Christians can theologically disagree and still be brethren in Christ, bound together in his love and grace by the power of the Spirit. We can stand shoulder to shoulder on mission, even if we don't see eye to eye on everything. So this brings us to the end of our doctrinal disagreement and navigating our triage, all of that. Um, next week, we'll move to matters of conscience, which are even more challenging because they often flush themselves out in behavior. Uh, so we'll talk about how to categorize conscience issues next week. The following week, we'll talk about how to um, navigate life with people who disagree with you. Um, so, so if your family thinks no one should ever listen to the Beatles because they did drugs when they wrote their song, and you go over to another family's house and you see a Beatles album out. How do you deal with that? How do you parent your children through that? These are the kinds of things we're gonna hit in the next two weeks. But we're out of time here. I'd be happy to talk afterwards, but thank you for uh, your kind attention.